Well, thank you guys so much for taking the time to talk with me today. We're here at the Sundance Institute Composer Doc Lab, which is the third year. I'm really excited to come back and talk with you all. So thank you guys for all for joining me. I really just wanted to start this off with you, Tabitha, talk about where we are today, what is this the documentary lab, and uh, give a little background on the Sundance Institute. Yeah, so I mean, we're here at the um, Music and Sound Design Lab, which is co-run. It's, a, it's a, one of the Sundance labs that we do every summer, but co-run with Skywalker. And it's such an incredible partnership. I think the things that the values that run through the Sundance Labs are absolutely the values that, that run through Skywalker as well, which is, a, which is, you know, creativity, community, generosity, and this space in which uh, you are exposed to people at the top of their game, but you're here to experiment and you're here to fail with them and you're here to learn. And it's, the, it's a unique thing. I don't think there's anything else like Not it. Not that I know of. <laughs> so just to give people a little sense of how someone would get here, we're saying there's close to 450 applicants and you narrowed it down to four people. So when you think of those four people, what are you looking for? What stands out, you know, from the, and also from the advisors here, what, what do you think that really stands out? Well, it's a, just a, a tiny correction. So it's 450 applicants, you're right. And, yeah. and between the two labs, so the fiction film lab and the documentary film lab, it's 10. Okay. So there are 10 people at the doc lab, yeah, for four <laughs> composers who, who um, demonstrate accomplishment in some musical field, um, originality, distinctiveness of voice, what, what would you... Yeah. That's it, distinctiveness mm -hmm. of voice. Yeah. Something that would add something to the conversation. What is it today that really catches your guys' attention when it comes to whether it's sound design or music? What, what, what is different about these individuals? Uh, open ears, uh, enthusiasm, uh, an interest in collaborating with film and... Artistic curiosity. Yeah. yeah. What, what do you find is different maybe even three years ago versus today? With, with applicants? Well, I think w one of the things I like most about it is that uh, the, the composers who come to this lab don't come with a lot of baggage of bad habits. Um, right. They're generally young, uh, they have a lot of talent, but they don't have a huge amount of experience. And, you know, there's so many bad habits <laughs> people pick up, <laughs> yeah. you know, working in movies. And one of the bad habits is not to collaborate. You know, mm -hmm. too often mm -hmm. each department on a film is more or less marching in the same direction, but they don't talk to each other enough, they don't share ideas, they don't argue as much as they sure. should. So that's, that's one thing that I love, that, uh, uh, that, that collaboration is, is the main thing. Yeah. What have you seen, Miriam, with the diversity of the different types of people here? Well, they seem to be, when they choose their applicants, they seem to really be looking for people that have a sense of a certain individuality, um, maybe a, something a little outside the mainstream, yeah. not necessarily gearing towards a Hollywood career, okay. you know, something on the more artistic side. And definitely people that are very enthusiastic about exploring, you oh, know, no. and, and not afraid to fail. Yeah. Todd, have you seen a little bit of, a, of yourself in some of these people that reminds you of... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, I flatter myself to say that, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I think I envy the position they're in. I think this is an amazing opportunity to grow, but they all seem up to it. They're, they're uh, interested in taking the opportunity and, and getting the most out of it. And yeah. some, I think, 
in general, some of these folks after the lab just take off yeah. in wonderful directions. Nice. So, uh, so what projects, whether they're projects that have been hosted here or outside, just that have come through Sundance or anywhere around the world, have you guys seen music and sound design for, for specifically a doc film work really together? Well, <clears throat> there's a, a documentary which um, premiered at Sundance last year and was an award winner actually uh, called Rich Hill. And uh, that came through the labs. And it's an extraordinary coming together of the sound design and the music and the story and the, and the visuals. And, you know, each element of that was, was storytelling in a different way that came together to meet this shared vision. And that was absolutely a function of this lab, no question. Yeah. How about you, Randy? Well, the, the first thing that occurs to me is the... the Errol Morris films that oh, I sure. worked on. Uh, worked on a couple of Errol's films with Philip Glass. And uh, Eric, Errol is certainly somebody who encourages you know, departments to talk together yeah. and, and uh, fight it out and, uh, <laughs> and work out solutions. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think uh, Thin Blue Line uh, oh, yeah, is a great example yeah. of that. Where, does that. where does that start from? Is that the director's vision to have that? Yeah, I think it usually is. Um, you know, sometimes directors are so worried about uh, whether the film is going to work and whether the sound and the music in the film are going to work that they give uh, the sound designer and the composer exactly the same instructions for every scene. <laughs> yeah. It's your job to make this work. And at this mark, everybody gets loud. Right, yeah. And so everybody brings all of their you know, ammunition and fires it all at once, and it just becomes noise. And so that's right. the last thing you want to do. OK. What about you, Todd? What was the question? <laughs> uh, a specific film where sound and music has, have really worked together well. Well, I would cite Rich Hill again. We just saw it last night. Uh, Pete Horner was the sound designer on that film, and the, he he has now got the habit of working for a full week with the composer before they start their job. So right. they pass materials back and forth. Uh, this composer has access to his sounds. He has access to their to their music, and they try to make a good marriage. It, and it's very successful. In that. The, the conversations after you watch a film like that, everyone's very excited about the outcome of that type of collaboration. It's, but then it's a different story when you start a project. Like, yeah, everybody, let's work together, and then. But the, um, one of the things, I think a film that, that already has been changed immeasurably just by being here for a few days is a project uh, that's coming from India, and they listened to Pete's presentation last night, and they're working with him as the sound designer, and they have completely reconceived the beginning of their film. Oh, nice. They're gonna go and reshoot it. Uh, to give sound primacy and sound design primacy. They now understand, after being here for a few days, the importance of sound in their film, so they're gonna cha change the visuals. And it's such a, it sounds like a small thing, but it's such a huge breakthrough, particularly for documentary filmmakers who aren't used to having this education, this ability to learn while they're making their films. Yeah. And these resources, you know, right. <clears throat> a lot of times in docs, because of low budgets, they don't really have access to this kind of quality of sound design and even music. Mm. And I think um, one of the things I think I see coming from the labs, having been many of them now, is that it's, it's really helping filmmakers understand that it's a team sport and there's a lot of resources to making the film more cinematic. And, and I'm hoping that through these labs, we're gonna see more cinematic arts 
coming through in documentaries. Mm -hmm. You know, you see it coming out of um, other parts of the world, but American documentaries seem like they've kind of drifted into like a television space. And um, one of the things that happens at this lab is these light bulbs go off in the filmmakers' heads, and, and all of a sudden they're going, oh my God, I didn't know it could be like this. You know, so they're thinking much grander. Yeah, the last, last few years there's been several filmmakers whose first experience of seeing their film, other than on a laptop, is oh, yeah. in the Stag Theater. Here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. <clears throat> Which is a perfect movie theater. Yeah, I mean, if that doesn't really change you from the core to think about the big screen. Or... To think about the possible scale of the film. Yeah. Uh, and so a lot of this speaks to scale. Yeah. Instead of thinking of it as this sort of poor little... YouTube. Yeah, <laughs> yeah YouTube or right. reality-based project, it can be a movie. Yeah. And that, the, that they invest a huge amount of time and communication skills in their picture editor, and it's here that they realize the sound editor is also telling the story <clears throat> in a way that's incredibly important, and that I think they leave here you know, reasserting the equality of the sound editor and the picture editor, which... Well, and music. Incredible. And music, of Because course, it's, yeah. it's really important that we are yeah, all sorry, telling this... Oh, it's okay, <laughs> I forgot. Uh, She's right there. It's really important that we're all telling the same story. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and sometimes if you, if, you, if you keep your department separated, I might be telling a different story with the score than the sound person is telling. Mm -hmm. And then you get into the mix stage, and what story are we telling? It's confusing, and you're wasting time trying to, mm. you know, work with all the elements. Yeah. I think something just speaking to what you're saying of apprenticeship and mentorships, obviously that's what this program does so well. Um, but what have you guys found, you know, a few ways that young composers or sound designers can gain early experience in their career to really get a sense of that, what they're getting into? What, what have you guys found your own personal experiences were apprenticing others or having mentors coming up? What, what to you has really been the most beneficial? Because there is no one way to necessarily do this. Yeah. I, I had three amazing mentors, Walter Murch and Ben Burt and Alan Splett, um, uh, who I, I just, by sheer luck, happened to wind up here in sort of the epicenter of a revolution that was taking place in, in movie sound in the 70s. Yeah. And was lucky enough to work with all three of them and uh, steal the best of their ideas. That's what I was gonna say, is like, because there's a certain amount that rubs off onto you that sure. you can't get away from necessarily. Yeah, but that, that's you know, basically how all art happens. It doesn't right. come from nowhere. You, you're influenced by something yeah. or someone and then you take those ideas and you put your own twist on them yeah. and that's the way it works. All right, what about you, Tabitha? I think it's the same thing. You know, I started off in the UK uh, and it started off as, at the BBC, which most people do, and there it, it's a built-in apprenticeship where you are watching people and you're there and you're l hearing how great directors speak to their, you know, to their various departments. There's nothing to beat being able to listen and just observe a process, um, and that's what it's really difficult to do in independent film, where you're just really trying to make your project and get it over the line. Yeah. Yeah. Todd, what was your experience? Well, I started out humbly uh, as a janitor, <laughs> and then I was uh, kind of a machine room tech on the conversation, so Walter Murch was right. there, he was mixing, and I got very inspired about mixing. Then I cut picture on uh, Black Stallion, Carol Ballard, a great mm -hmm. filmmaker, hasn't made a lot of films, but really, and then I cut sound on the same film with Alan Sweat, and my job was to, one of my jobs as sound editor was to put music in before we had screenings and I would do it from LPs, you know, temporary music. But I thought, hey, 
maybe I should do this for real. So I went, got an education and started doing that. But I kind of learned on the job. Yeah. So I did a lot of mixing. And, but to have those, those influences, yeah, you learn a lot from them. It's kind of your DNA. What can you even say of just the, the time that you were coming up when it was a very physical act of working on a film? It's not a digital kind of, you don't really see it or touch it as much. What, what can you say just about the work that you're doing? Did it feel like there was a different importance or a different relationship you had with the work? Yeah, I think the physicality is, is an interesting thing to remember. You know, in, in the early days of editing, to see footage, you know, you, ha you watch a whole bunch of footage. How do you see it again? You see it partly when you're rewinding through it <laughs> right? uh, on a flat, flat editing table. You know, you run back to the, the beginning and it goes by at high speed, but it kind of, you can see the shot and you go, oh yeah. Right. Um, and so I'm not sure how people do it now because I haven't cut picture in a long time, but you know, how do you get reminded of those shots? Yeah. yeah. What about you, Mary? Well, it's really interesting. I had never really thought of being a film composer. I was a musician first, but um, I was my first mentor was uh, Arthur Dong. I worked on a film with him, and it changed my life because I came to Sundance and I experienced the documentary community. And uh, through the years, I think my mentors have been like Kate Amend and mm -hmm. Lisa Lehman, and um, learning just about storytelling and bringing what I naturally do as music into the storytelling. Awesome. And they were very nurturing. Yeah. The thing is that the learning never stops. I mean, that's yeah. the other thing about being here, that I feel that we all, as advisors, leave feeling re rejuvenated. Oh, definitely. This, it's the combination of what you were just talking about, which is both the mentorship and the doing it on the job. Mm -hmm. So you have these extraordinary advisor presentations, but you're actually working on material yourself, and you, you learn what a mistake feels like and how to get over that and how to move on to the next thing. Well, and so many times making a mistake opens up your mind to it, especially in music, for sure this happens all the time. You play a bad note and you go, whoa, <laughs> then you do something more with it. And I think it happens in picture too. You mm -hmm. just stumble upon things and you have to have a space for that and you have to have an open mind for that. Mm. I always say a craftsperson knows how to avoid accidents and an artist knows how to use them. Oh, that's yeah, nice. That's a good one. Or certainly how to make them. There's a, yeah, right. There's a statue somewhere with that. But uh, <laughs> the mistakes are absolutely crucial, no matter how long you've been doing it. Uh, God. <laughs> I think you know, all of us would agree that uh, you, you never know exactly how to do a project when you're beginning it, and you know you're going to make a lot of mistakes. And sometimes the producer hires you because they think you know, and you're not going to make any mistakes. <laughs> but you know very well you're going to go down dead-end roads. And you just have to persevere and keep trying and keep kind of making mistakes until something works. If I'm not terrified when I get a job, I'm, there's something wrong. Right. I'm just terrified from the minute I get the assignment, I'm thinking, oh my God. That's what, that's what someone told me, is if you're not nervous, that, if you're nervous, that's good, it means you care. Oh, yeah. which, which when someone said that, I was like, all right, that could justify my nervous <laughs> moving forward the rest of my life. Um, but changing subjects here, talking about budget, obviously like we're talking about coming to somewhere like Skywalker, which is not a bad place to bring your project to, but that's not always the situation. So what can you say about having the constraints of a smaller budget? What is possible? I mean, you could just see, I've seen films that have had little to no budget and sound, as we know, can just lift the storytelling process so much. So what have your own experiences been with, you know, whether it's when you started or even now, of the const what that constraint does creatively of, of knowing what your limitations are when it comes to It's very guerrilla. Yeah. I love filmmakers. I mean, they blow my mind all the time. They've got their camera, they're out there, they're just finding the story, they're pointing it in the right place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's resourcefulness. And if you have that resourcefulness, and, you know, sometimes having a big budget kind of dampens that resourcefulness. And so same for me in the music side. 
Um, I, over the years, I've just developed all these strategies for how to maximize a budget and still get the elements that are most important to me. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I think in some ways, sometimes when I had, when people offer me too much money, I'm kind of confused. Mm -hmm. Like, wait, I don't know. I'm not sure what to do. <laughs> yeah. Like, because you know, in order to really jump up, you need a lot more money. Sure. So I'd rather stay crafty down here and just be resourceful. Well, I think we all are going to do the, the best, put our best foot forward, no matter what theoretically the budget might be, but Randy, what have you found just with that? Well, I'd say the new digital technology has helped people at the low end even more than people at the high end, okay. uh, yeah. because there are these amazing audio recorders that you can hold in your hand and go out and record anything right. with and put into any movie, no matter what the budget. Yeah. And likewise, the post-production equipment uh, allows people to do mixes in their little workstation at home that you would have had to have a giant dubbing stage sure. to do a decade or two ago. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think if you have a limited budget and you happen to get into a lab like this, the week that you spend here could save you a year of searching. You have a lot of really smart people talking to you about your film, giving you ideas, giving you stuff to chew on. You could then you know, kind of just put the crew aside for a while and, and rethink the film and then do it quickly. I, I also think a limited budget might give you limited time, which might help some people get down to work. <laughs> well, they, they always say there's never enough time, whether it's... Sometimes yeah, too much yeah. time is a bad thing. Yeah. 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 I th I'd say a couple of things on that. One is uh, that the kind of democratization of technology is an incredible thing. Um, but it doesn't help you become a better storyteller, mm. either through sound right. or music or visuals. And so the education or the knowledge is still the, the prime thing. And whether you get that through just doing it yourself and going gorilla or you have access to this, um, that's another thing. But what, um, what having limited means does is, is it forces you to prioritise what you're going to compromise on. And hopefully, again, through this knowledge, you'll, you will think, as you would think, I'm not going to compromise on picture quality. You'd think, I'm not going to compromise on sound quality either. So maybe my cross services will get <laughs> But it also brings into play the community, which is a, such a huge thing in independent filmmaking, that people, if they see the quality of the work uh, in its potential and your passion for it, then people will often do you a favor because they value the artistry or because they can see it's a good, good calling card for them. Mm -hmm. um, but th this is not to say that low budgets are good things, because, <laughs> you know, we, we're still in a world where filmmakers don't pay themselves, and, and right. this economy, this handshake economy of favours and mates rates, it's, um, it's not great, but it can have great outcomes. So don't go on Craigslist to find your next project? No. Working in different formats of content, whether it's episodic, shorts, feature lengths, each of them have different kind of timelines and you know, creative challenges. What have you guys found, you've taken away from even working on these different types of projects? Do you find that um, you prefer one over another? I mean, a lot of you guys have done work for TV and HBO and documentary now has a whole other life on demand and streaming services. So what have you guys found, and maybe for you, Randy, to start off? I enjoy going back and forth between longer term and shorter term mm -hmm. projects. Um, what, what would that look like? What's short, with long? Well, uh, uh, for me, a, a long one would be working on something for six or eight months. Okay. Uh, and a short one would be maybe uh, two or three weeks. Okay. And 
uh, I love s- switching genres also because it just you know, mixes my brain up in, yeah. in interesting ways. So yeah, I would get bored if I was working on just you know only you know feature right. fiction films all the time. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm really content driven. Uh-huh. Like, um, if I connect to a project, I don't care what format it's in, or um, I just am so excited. Like, I like to get be excited when I get up in the morning. Oh, I'm going to work. Right. You know, I'm thinking, what will I do today? Right. And so, really, it doesn't matter. Um, I've really found for me, independent documentaries, whether they're long or short, or um, because I'm also really inspired by the filmmakers. I love how crafty they are and how you know, just brilliant and inspired. And I just want to live in that world of being inspired, you know, and, and working hard. Everybody works really hard to do their best work. So that's all I care about, really. Yeah. Well, you tell it. Uh, well, you know, I, I'm at my happiest now in um, feature-length documentary and the independent documentary uh, because they are, they are so often passion projects. It's such a, I talked about generosity. Mm-hmm. It's such a generous act to take, you know, on average our projects take four years. Right. And people go into debt for them just to tell a story to other people. Yeah. So it's not a commission, it's, it's something very different and I, I, I love that. Mm-hmm. But they, you know, short documentaries uh, aren't just long ones cut down. It's a whole mm-hmm. different skill set. It's like short story writing and writing a novel. So, um, you know, I agree with Randy that the, that the variety is great, but these big operatic passion projects, I love. Yeah. Todd? Everyone said anything I could say. <laughs> I, I, I love feature-length docs. Um, I, I actually do like more time, if possible. Uh, you know, be able to spend four months on a film is, is a mm-hmm. huge luxury because I can, I can really get into the nitty-gritty of it. Uh, but I like a half-hour doc, too. Um, it's it's a different thing, but it, it's over sooner, and it's you know you get to mix and match. Yeah. When a, when a project finds its right length, that's the yeah. Yeah, that's the great yeah. thing. And so many there are so many feature docs that really shouldn't be as long <laughs> 90 as they're minutes. Uh, yes. Okay. So yeah. that's the joy of Netflix and so on. That those those things can be there is more flexibility. Right. In, no slots. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Another thing about time is that uh, most artists are procrastinators. Sure, that's true. <laughs> uh, and uh, I think Todd maybe earlier said, you know, it's it's only when you have you know a gun pointed to your head that you you, you, <laughs> you do your your best work. And so, in a sense, it doesn't it doesn't matter you know whether you on the calendar have uh, many many months or or just a couple of weeks to to do a film because. The, the one you have many months on, you may wait until the last two months to do anything very meaningful anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what is it about the projects when you look back and you look at someone's, even your own roster of work and your credits, and there's always a few projects that stand out as being the thing that you get associated with, the type of work that you do. Do you find that you can get away from that? Do you find that there's enough, you have enough of, I guess, um, just knowing what interests you have that you can say, I don't, you know, I don't want to be pigeonholed. You know, at, even at this point in your guys' careers, you know, you, it's, you came with almost 20 years of TV, is that right? Yeah, all right, keep it down. <laughs> <laughs> so with that being said, you know, what is it like to transition into something that's similar but different, you know? It's fantastic, but I think often you, I think what you find is that it's by looking back and seeing which projects you've done that tells you something about yourself. Okay. I think we're, we're, 
there's a sense that we feel in documentary that we're, we're just capturing this objective world. Um, and it's not. We, we are expressing ourselves, that we're attracted to certain uh, subjects and topics and people because of who we are. So it's by looking backwards on your body of work that you think, mm. oh, I get it. Yeah. I'm interested in this. So pigeonholing hasn't really been an issue for... I think people like to say there's a pigeonhole, but then again, we like to also think we have enough of our own freedom to decide what we choose. Mary, what about you? And you can bring to anything, you know what I mean? It may look like a similar thing, but I, uh, you know, if you can bring a fresh outlook. Um, I definitely, I agree with you in that, like, I look back and I see themes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, there's, like, we all have our own themes. Yeah. And, um, you know, but, to, but as you... Uh, grow older and learn more, you bring different things to maybe even some similar topics. So you might be going deeper with it, um, finding fresher approaches. There's always more to learn and more to explore, and that's what keeps the work interesting and fresh. Hmm. So pigeonhole, schmigeonhole, you right. know, who cares? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, well, you know, music has, music keeps changing, and yeah. people's sophistication about music keeps changing, and sophistication about genres, the differences between them and the samenesses between them. So I find that uh, the last few years I've gotten to work on some things where I was working in new genres that I hadn't before. Mm -hmm. It's still my voice, mm -hmm. but to find my voice in a new genre is really fun, really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I had a comment after somebody saw a film I did recently saying, I never thought of you as a jazz guy. Well, oh, yeah. there's a reason for that. But, <laughs> but he said, but now I will recommend you, you know, if, there's, right. if jazz is called for. So it's, it's great to be able to touch on so many different genres. Well, also the um, technology keeps evolving. Okay. So like, I'm always changing my studio and then it's insane because I'll be doing it, oh, I want that new thing, so I'm gonna change it in the middle of a project, which right. is pretty insane. But um, it's, it just keeps it so interesting because suddenly you have a new palette of sounds or a new kind of way of approaching music with a different kind of instrument or a different technology. So all that stuff is going on at the same time and I'm sure for filmmakers too, mm -hmm. the technology is evolving. Well, I'll say for you, Randy, like even a synclavier early on sure. you know, was yeah. a big kind of place to go. What have you found, you're, you know, working on a project even as you know, amazing as Apocalypse Now in the beginning of your career, did you imagine that you were gonna be one specific type of genre of, of film or projects? Yeah, I thought every film was gonna be just like Apocalypse <laughs> Now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Apocalypse Now was the very first film I worked on, so that, that was my film school. It was quite an, yeah. edu quite an education. Uh, yeah, I started in, in uh, live action feature films. And then uh, I did that for you know, 15 years or <laughs> so, and then worked on this uh, animated film, The Incredibles, that got <laughs> a lot of attention. And suddenly, uh, almost the only calls I was getting was from directors and producers of animated films, because <laughs> sure. they were so impressed by The Incredibles. So I got pigeonholed for a while as only being able to do animated films. I didn't work on a live action film for you know, six or eight years, I think. So uh, I actually had to work a little to yeah. you know, remind people, hey, I can also do live action. <laughs> I mean, that was even the case with Robert Zemeckis of doing live action and animation now back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what have you found where you are now, looking back of the variety of projects, where do you want to go next? 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm tempted to make a joke about retirement, but I'm not, I'm not going to retire. Uh, but I, I love animation, and I love uh, live action. I, I love fiction films, and I love docs. So I just want to keep doing as wide a variety of things as I can. And I also want to say that you know we've said a couple of times that music and sound um, support the film. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the most important things that we talk about and we learn in this Sundance Skywalker collaboration is that music and sound are not necessarily secondary things. Because no. when you say they support the story, it sounds like, oh, well, they're, right. they're like the, the, little, uh, the little cousins that help, help the story along. Um, and one of the things that we talk an awful lot about in these workshops is how sometimes music can lead the story. Sometimes mm-hmm. sound design can lead the story. Right. the story. And, yeah, it absolutely yeah. does. And it's amazing watching these young filmmakers' eyes open and ears open in ways that they hadn't before when they figure out that that's actually true. Yeah. yeah. So two more questions here. One being that just thinking of where we've come with music and sound. When you talked about what things used to sound like when you started, I, I just can imagine the, you know, you couldn't do strings in a computer per se. That wasn't even a, a possibility. What is it about today and moving forward that, you know, even though we've been 20 or 30 years for some of you guys in your careers, what do you think of the next 15, five, you know, 10 years? What could that, what is this landscape heading towards? What do you, what do you think it might be? This is really, um... I mean, there's a, there's a really active conversation going on now about virtual reality and augmented reality. Virtual re- reality is very interesting for uh, non-fiction filmmakers in terms of how can you put a linear narrative into an immersive world? And how does that work in terms of editing? And it almost feels like if virtual reality really takes off, and there is a problem with a content pipeline. Sure. Yes, it's gr- we've experienced it now, but what's it actually going to do? What, the, what are the stories it's going to do? It feels like it could be a new language of cinema because the sound absolutely is going to take priority in directing people's attention in this 360 world. So there are all kinds of thoughts about that. That will, that will either take off or it will fail, but there'll be a lot yeah. more activity in that realm, you I think. See it, like Cinemascope even was a pretty big <laughs> image. But now we're going even bigger, so yeah, I think that's, that's a good point, yeah. Mary um, Martin? You know, it's funny, this has been going on in music for a long time because we had the accessibility to this technology that brought it into our homes and made it available to many more people. And so, you know, what happens is you get a lot more music being produced, and but not any more music that's really good being produced, just more music being produced. And I think that all these technological things, what I see happening is young people discovering they can walk in a coffee house and there's a guy with a guitar playing and singing and they're like, wow, (laughs) wow, that's really, wow, you know, there's a group of us here watching. And and I think when it comes to storytelling, it's, it's, it's such a basic thing of humans. It will always be there and we'll be playing with all these different technologies of how to tell stories, but at the bottom of it will be, is it a good story? Is it interesting? And is there a community kind of experience of the story? Mm. And uh, so I I don't think that the other stuff will go away. I, I just think that there's, you know, like right now we're having music's been compressed down and you listen on earbuds to a little compressed signal. Mm-hmm. And then you walk into this room and you hear live players in this room and people are going to have a transcendent experience of music. So 
I just hope that we can keep the keep it available. Enough sure. people keep those traditions going so that people can experience the storytelling or the music and sound or whatever, you know, in its organic state. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. Yeah. What about you, Todd? You know, thinking about it, I guess um, there's been some loss of communality of experience when, when the movie theater becomes less important to people. Okay. But I think that we're probably headed toward a communality of experience because of the fact that internet connection is becoming closer and closer to real time. And people are more and more interested in the same thing at the same time, like binge watching of TV shows. Sure. And maybe gaming, virtual reality, something in that realm will become something where people do commune again. And I think that's, it, I think it's an exciting prospect and it'll probably be a little bit different kind of community, but you know, I think that's just the way the future is gonna be. I think people are slicing up their, their interest and their consciousness and their attention a little more, but maybe that can reverse or maybe that can become another kind of art form, mm -hmm. another kind of, of way to connect. Yeah. Randy? I don't know. I, I have wild fantasies. About, uh, <laughs> what does that look like? About uh, inserting uh, a sound component into Final Draft, which uh -huh. is you know, the main screenwriting <laughs> sure. program, or uh, a sound. Why shouldn't there be a sound storyboard? Mm. Uh, uh, or how can we incorporate sound into the way a, a documentary is designed? Mm. Uh, those are the kinds of things that I fantasize about, and I think eventually it's gonna happen. There's just a lot of inertia to overcome. Yeah. So lastly, uh, you know, what advice you'd give your 20 or 30 year old self as a creative starting off? What does that look like? If, if you could go back and remember when you were 20 or 30, what would you tell yourself? <laughs> it's not that long ago. <laughs> it was. So when you were first starting off, no number attached, what would you say to yourself? What advice would you give yourself? Oh, it's so tedious, but it, it is to ask questions and take any opportunity, take any experience that I can, just take it, because it's, it's, it's going to be useful in some way later. It's going gonna, it's gonna to inform me in some way later. Don't, don't hold back and be polite and pretend to know things <laughs> that I don't. Yeah, great. Mary? Well, I think I, I didn't do it as directly as I would do it now, but I've been doing it over the last 30 years. Just follow your heart. Yeah. You can't go wrong. Yeah. Randy? I'd say, you know, I, I wish I had gotten better at listening uh -huh. early, early on, both listening to sounds in the world and listening really acutely to my collaborators and my bosses. I always tell our you know, interns and apprentices at Skywalker that um, it's important to listen to what's coming out of the speakers in front of you if you're in a, a mixing studio, but in a way it's more important to listen to what's coming from behind you, which is the people who you're working with, yeah. <laughs> and figure out how to read between the lines and figure out what the subtext is. And some, mm. It's so hard to talk about sound anyway. Right. Uh, I wish I'd gotten a little more sophisticated about that a little sooner. Yeah. I was just thinking about um, communication and the importance of it, and you just saying that, you know, that, that old chestnut about talking about music is like dancing about architecture. Uh. But if we try, if, if, if we were exploring, what does wisdom sound like? <laughs> it would sound like Randy uh. Tom's voice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We know that. Yeah. Todd? Uh, I, I guess I would have just played more instruments sooner. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah, and I would say, just work with great people that you have fun with and 
might come up with a pretty amazing end result. So thank you guys so much for this time and uh, let's keep just trying to do the best work we can. Having yeah. some fun. I'll drink to that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>